Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet. Hello everyone and welcome to this, the latest edition of ESSR feature here on the Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet podcasting network. I'm your host this week, Stephen Wilson, and we're just off the back of SummerSlam weekend. So we're going to mark it by not talking about SummerSlam, thankfully, and record it. we're recording this before SummerSlam, so we don't know at this point if it was good or bad. But one thing that's consistent about SummerSlam weekend in the last few years is the NXT TakeOver. We had an NXT TakeOver this past weekend. Again, I don't know if it was good or bad, but who knows? But we're going to talk about one that we definitely know was good. It's one of the latest in our pay-per-view look-back shows. We're going to be looking back at the first ever NXT TakeOver Brooklyn. A TakeOver regarded by so many as one of the best of the TakeOver series to date. Who knows? The one we just had two days ago may have surpassed it. I don't know. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. Pre- not gonna pretend I know anything about it at this particular point. But before we get started with this show, just the usual uh, housekeeping for all you listeners. If you have not already done so, you can follow us on our social media channels: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are at Suplex Retweet. Also on YouTube, where you can find various content that we do on there: Quiz Showdown, uh, Conspiracy Theory. All those sorts of things that we get on there. Uh, I can't remember the other one. Book it is the other one. Yes, exactly. Book it. Come on, Stephen, get your head in the game. And of course, if you've not done so already, if you've never listened to us before now, or if you have listened to us before now and just have been lazy, hit the subscribe button and you can get all our content that comes out every week. Now, enough about me. Let's introduce my panel, two of which were on with myself last week. I wasn't hosting, but they were here. Uh, it was, first of all, the host of last week's show. We have Sarah Grieve here again. Hi. Hey, how's it going? It's going not too bad. What, we're going to look back on one of my favourite pay-per-views. Although, when see, when I told Daniel I was doing this, he went, haven't you already done that? I was like, no. Loophole. We have talked about some matches on past shows. <laughs> but not the pay-per-view itself. Loophole. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's so many like links to this like particular <laughs> pay-per-view that we've done before. We've, we've reviewed the pay-per-view that comes after this, but we've yeah. not actually done this one, which should be interesting. Uh, and a man who over the last few weeks has become very accustomed to Seth Rollins' penis. He may be in this particular show because he was in the front row. <laughs> it's David Hockney. You're taking that way out of context here. And bear in mind, I did not mention it at any point during our Seth Rollins feature show. That was down to you and the GOAT, so the blame is solely on you two for that one. I mentioned that the last week's show as well, said all back there. Yeah, you did actually, yeah. Yeah. If anything, you can't get it out of your head. If anything, Dave, did you get a good crotch pick? Uh, I was going to ask you actually, because you're, you're apparently the expert on that. I am. If you need tips, call me. I'm charging £10 a session. <laughs> well, that's a rip-off and a half. <laughs> And a man who wasn't on the, on the show last week, but would love to delve into the topic that we're currently talking about, as opposed to the one we're going to talk about, is Gary Kiernan. Oh, Stephen, you m- totally missed an open goal there. You could have said for your intro, talking of dicks. Oh, <laughs> at least you're honest about yourself, Gary. I, can, I, I respect that, you know. I, I'm embracing that. And if I had a cock like Seth Rollins, I'd be I'd be posting it all over the internet as well. Oh, sorry, leaking leaking it. 
Yes, absolutely. But enough about Sexy Seth. You can hear more about him on the back catalogue of the show we did two weeks ago. We're going to delve into NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 1. The first TakeOver show, the sixth in the series of TakeOvers that uh, NXT had done to this particular point, and the first to be held outside the Performance Centre. It was held at the Barclays Centre, where SummerSlam was the night after, and Raw was... I don't think Raw was on the Monday night. I can't remember what it Yeah, it was. It was, it was, it was yeah. Yeah, but that was pretty much the first big full-out SummerSlam weekend with these shows that they'd ever had. Uh, just under 16,000 attended the show, 15,589 for a show described as the Battle for Brooklyn. But what's a look-back show hosted by me without some stats of what happened on that particular day? Hey, 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 you did me have a job here, so keep them to a minimum, if you please. I always talk about what happened on that particular day. Unfortunately, not a lot uh, nice happened on it uh, that particular day. The UK box office was topped by the Adam Sandler film Pixels, an absolute classic. Huh? Wasn't a great summer for movies. The Star Wars Force Awakens came out later in the year in the final uh, Hunger Games, but unfortunately that was not in the summer. Well, you think you would have brought out these really good films. <laughs> well, the uh, final Hunger Games wasn't that good, though. No, so it, was a, it, it was a big deal. It was disappointing. We should have put it into the one film, but that's oh, for, right. uh, that's for right. uh, first-time films and David Campbell. I'm looking at you, David. <laughs> and uh, at the top of the UK singles charts was Jess Glynn with Don't Be So Hard On Yourself. Yeah. And the first thing that's Seth Rollins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh dear. Oh god, Seth Rollins. This is going to be like a recurring pun. It's like we're replacing the Viscera stuff with the Seth Rollins stuff. It's going to become a thing going forward. Uh, but enough about Seth. We're going to actually delve into the card. Six particular matches happened on this show, and we're going to start with one which probably about a couple of years before that, I never thought I was going to say. We had Tyler Breeze taking on New Japan Pro Wrestling legend, Jusin Thunder Liger, making his first ever appearance in a WWE ring, and what would actually be his last ever appearance in a WWE <laughs> ring. Even though Byron Saxton at many points in this particular night described it as Liger's debut, like he was just gonna show up in full sale like two weeks later, fighting uh, Kona Reeves or something, I don't know if he was signed at that particular point. Uh, <laughs> Sarah, I will go to you on this one because out of my three panellists, you're the one I'm most confident knows a lot about Jushin Wonder Liger than <laughs> the other two. It's, it's been six years. It's still surreal to picture Jushin Wonder Liger wrestled in WWE. I mean, see, this was actually like the first takeover that I had watched like since coming back to wrestling because um, it was SummerSlam weekend of that year. Um, but I knew Jushin Thunder Liger, um, just obviously like I don't watch WWE, I've watched New Japan every now and again, I watched like, you know, other stuff, but the announcement of Jushin Thunder Liger to come and appear at an NXT TakeOver, it felt completely out of nowhere, um, I don't know what the actual deal was with them, <laughs> and I don't know like what they wanted to do with it but the the fact it was like just as like a special guest mm-hmm. and as going in a match against tyler breeze i was i was flabbergasted because i was like first of all why is this happening how is this happening and 
of what the hell is going to come of this? And even just looking back, you're like, why did it happen? <laughs> I still don't understand why. <laughs> yeah, um, Gary, I mean, in terms of NXT at this particular point, they're going to bring in a special attraction from, you know, out with New Japan Pro Wrestling, this particular case from one of the, their greatest export in Liger. You feel like if they were going to put an NXT guy, the two probably choices they had at this point were probably Breeze and Zayn. And obviously Zayn at this particular point, he just picked up, a, he just dislocated his shoulder uh, challenging uh, John Cena for the US Championship. So, and the other guy I maybe think of, Neville, he was up at Raw, so he was not on NXT actively at that point. So, uh, Breeze is the natural fit if you want a natural guy from NXT who's going to make Liger look a million bucks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it was interesting. We was so it was so much fun going back and watching this show. And not all the review shows we do are fun to go and look back to. ECW December to December is coming up, um, <laughs> and uh, you know it, it was interesting. What we'd see after this is NXT start to bring in people, more seasoned uh, wrestlers for the developmental talent to work with and you know people like Rhino and so on would start to appear in NXT fairly regularly and this gave the you know the brand uh, a real uh, sprinkle of stardust and uh, uh, WWE at the time was starting some sort of working relationship with New Japan I can't for the life of me remember what else that uh, included but it was really good to see it there was so much about this match I enjoyed um, you know Tyler Breeze I thought despite losing looked like a star in this match I loved his entrance I loved the mm, that was good the, the, uh, uh, when he was announced being from his seasonal home in Cairo Egypt as he had a uh, somewhat Egyptian themed look to him I thought he looked looked really good but what was so good looking back at this obviously it was a big deal for NXT to do this big show and Triple H's uh, dad promo at the start pretty proud dad promo <laughs> at the start was was quite nice but what was so interesting is seeing some uh, seeing takeover before it evolved into the format that we became known know and love mm-hmm. now so this was the first takeover if I remember correctly that adopted the name of the location yeah, as well, yeah. so TakeOver Brooklyn um, and the format that we went on to see which was like open with a banging tag match uh, you have some sort of exhibition match of description you've got the Women's Championship match which more often than not was the semi-main event and then the NXT Championship match is the main event but yeah I thought this worked incredibly well for uh, for Tyler Breeze uh, it, was a, it was a good opener and this crowd was a little loving it and also I loved the you know Takeover at this time. It was a network special. Should have been a two-hour show. Became two-hour, twenty-minute show. But it's quite a a nice digestible amount of time to to watch. And the audience doesn't get exhausted, as you see throughout this show. This crowd loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this kind of, uh, that New Japan deal that you kind of mentioned. It was kind of like a forbidden window. Type idea, not really a door, but kind of something yeah. that just something squeeze through, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, just I actually don't think that any deal really got further than this. I think they were in Japan the month before for Beast in the East, they were trying to do something. Mm-hmm. And as we know, 
everybody's doing something with you Japan other than WWE at this point. Uh, speaking of you Japan, let's go over to our expert, Mr. David Hockney. Um, <laughs> David, what did you think of this one? Obviously, I'd assume this is the first time you'd ever seen the great Liger uh, compete. Uh, you know what? It's even even if it was the first match I've ever seen him in, it didn't disappoint me. You know, Gary mentioned. Like the whole aesthetic of the match was set up, you know, with Breeze's entrance. He came out dressed as a pharaoh, saying that his entrance, well, his seasonal home was Cairo, Egypt. He was taking selfies of the of the the catwalk models dressed as New York icons. But the match itself, I actually thought, went off to a very almost uh, bit of a comedic start in a way, because you know, even though they did the whole lockup and maybe a few sort of moves to get going. You could tell, you know, Breeze was being his cocky, arrogant self, you know, staying true to his character. But Liger, for somebody who made his first WWE match there, he was, you know, taken in, taken in by the crowd as if he's been there for, for a really long time. Like, treated with great respect by both fans and the commentators too. And he had that sort of uh, cheekiness about him where he was mocking Breeze's... Uh, rest on the corner of the ring post and playing with his selfie stick as well you know i think it was just a way to get him riled up and so it showed you there was a bit of personality to him as well rather than just you know adopting that strong style that we see a lot from japanese wrestlers uh but it was it was a very sort of solid back and forth energetic sprint between these two guys who who really hit the mark when it came to you know, sort of delivering a solid opening match for what was already going to be a, a spectacular event overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got uh, two stars from Dave Meltzer, considering a New Japan legend was in the match. I think that's quite low. Yeah, I think that was that's harsh. I think that's harsh. I would have said, I would have given it at least three. I'd have said three and a half. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a surprise when consider, you know, everybody jokes, oh, if it happened in the Tokyo Dome, well, I had some guy it was. Some guy wrestled the opening match of a January 4th Tokyo Dome show and just Justin Liger uh, wrestled the first ever WCW Nitro match and retired just before the, the pandemic happened. So, mm-hmm. no coincidence like, at all. The Liger Bomb as well, I think it's a, it's a decent finisher, but probably not the most captivating I've ever seen. I think Breeze managed to get a supermodel kick in at one point as well. But yeah. I think if he, unless he was able to perform that wheel kick, you know, maybe we could have had an opportunity for a near fall. I know because if a, a character like Tyler Breeze got a victory over somebody like Jushin Thunder Liger, like we would not hear the end of it, particularly as, mm-hmm. you know, Breeze was meant to be this yeah. cocky, uh, self-righteous, uh, you know, arrogant sort of character. To be fair, it was 50. It was 51 at this point, Liger, so. Yeah, I mean, I think 51. the finish. I think the finish. Sorry. Sorry guys, I think the finish was a wee bit sudden, um, but that's, I mean, that's the only fault I could pick, and I thought it was a good opener. Mm-hmm. There was a what? really quite wicked monkey flip as well, I can't remember the last time I said that sentence. Um, I joined the match as well when Breeze did like a sort of 360 and landed flat in his yeah, face yeah. rather landing on your back. Last time I've seen a mon- uh, monkey flip like that, I think it was, um, it might have been Vengeance 2011, where Kofi Kingston and Evan Bourne faced Ziggler and Swagger, and Ziggler took a massive bump uh, from Kofi's version of it, and it was oh, it was a, a thing of beauty to watch. You're the only guy still that quotes these random matches from random pay-per-views <laughs> in the middle of the north. Yeah, I moved, the... From, 
I moved from Armageddon 2006 to Vengeance 2011 now. One of the one of the forgotten pay-per-views of that year. I mean, one thing is, well, uh, Gary, you mentioned about the crowds, you know, throughout the show they don't get exhausted. They especially don't get exhausted when they talk about the second match, you know. But we get, uh, just before it, we get a nice wee shot of the crowd, typical takeover style. We see the NWO. Mm -hmm. uh, we get a promo of some uh, wrestler who's still wrestling, or claims to still be wrestling, in Nia Jax. But the crowd aren't really caring about that. They're well into what's happening next, which is the NXT Tag Team Championship match, where the team of Blake and Murphy, accompanied by an unfeeling like Alexa Bliss at this particular point in time, take on Aiden English and Simon Gotch, the Vaude villains. Gary, I've always thought, when I look back on this show, other than the semi-main event, this match is the one that stands out like a sore thumb to me because the crowd are hot as hell. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's you know, the Vaughn villains. I mean, I always loved their entrance and what was you know NXT was so great at giving people these presentations, and this this was great. I mean, I didn't like the the act of the Vaughn villains. I thought it was clearly limited, and when they were called up, it was. With, if I remember right, very little fanfare. I think they just appeared in SmackDown, didn't they? So it feels like a wasted opportunity. But when you see, you know, you're a member of the Vaughn villains on SmackDown, and then when you see them on this night, I mean, my God, it was night and day. Uh, they seem to have uh, bags of potential here. And it was so interesting in this show to see like, the characters forming. If you had to say of those six, super, the six star superstars in this matchup, that there'd only be one of them left on the roster six years later, and that one would be one of the biggest uh, stars in the female in the women's division, and, and Alexa Bliss. And she was she was a, like she was a bit of a sort of side garnish in the plate in this match, and what a star she's gone on to be. But it was really interesting to see the characters forming, and I, I have to give a special shout out to Blake's kinda dancing entrance. As he kind of like jumped from side to side on the way to the way to the ring. I did also like their Iron Man entrance music, but yeah, the crowd absolutely loved it. Um, and the finish of the match, I thought was great. You know, we had the near fall and the pop. We had Bliss and Blue Pants get it, get into things there, and then the roll up, which made you think, oh my god, they're gonna. They're going to do, uh, steal it here, and then uh, the Von Villains hit their finish, and the place went crazy. And it was just such a, it was such a good moment and a real feel-good moment. It was, yeah, a really, really enjoyable match. Yeah, uh, say that Gary mentions Blue Pants City that we had there. You know, Blue Pants, <laughs> who also we now know her as Labour Bates, one half of the former Liberians in AEW, big part of the backstage team in the AEW at the moment. Uh, this is arguably the highlight of a very short run in NXT this particular night because, as I mentioned, the crowd want to see the Vaughn villains, but the crowd want to see her more than anybody else. Oh, I know. They were chanting like mad for blue pants, and you know what? I can't I can't blame them. I mean, you've, you've got to love her. I mean, it's unfortunate that she's not getting a, a good massive run in AEW. I mean, I, I sit and watch her Twitch channel, and it's just, you know, She's into like the avid gaming, and she's a big part of um, AW Heels now. So, hats off to her. But 
I think like this this total thing it worked so well because at the same time there was no women in NXT that seemed to go with the VOD villains like just like their complete aesthetic and yeah. all this sort of stuff um, so bringing in blue pants like yeah she's she's colourful whereas they were obviously meant to be like old noir black and white sort of style and um, was a, it was a it was a good thing but it, she was also the polar opposite of Alexa Bliss and obviously we saw how much that worked um like later on when you had the the intergender tag match um or the intergender six-way um, match so like the actual crowd as well like I've I've seen them go mad for like big stars that are already in NXT or even like potentially returning but she wasn't even with the company it was just like a one off of like one two off appearances and the the just the explosion you're just like they were like yes yes we want blue pants we're getting blue pants oh my god it's not even like a proper entry music she has. It's just like some random tune that they stick on the Titan John. Yeah. It's mental to think that there is a subtle tease. You can probably say it's classed as a subtle tease the fact that the VOD villains are wearing blue gear. Yeah. You know, I think that's a subtle mm, yeah. tease. And they kind of had this whole thing going into it. It's like it was Bliss was a f- uh, interfering in all the matches. They wanted a third person in. And obviously, when that kind of happened, you kind of get the idea of it. But we've talked a lot about the VOD villains, uh, David. But mm. Blake and Murphy here, you know, at this point, they were the second longest ever reigning NXT Tag Team Champions. Obviously, there hadn't been too many at this particular point, but still a decent achievement for them. And it's kind of a shame that not after this, the tag team pretty much just, you know, doesn't go anywhere. Obviously, Buddy Murphy, he has a great, a decent run on by himself. But uh, Wesley Blake, he's briefly in the Forgotten Sons and he's forgotten, WWE forgotten. Yeah. The Knights of the Lone Wolf, Stephen, don't disrespect them, but you can't forget that particular career highlight. <laughs> oh yeah, the one appearance they made. Yes, but, that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shame, Dave, because here they, 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 they present themselves as a very well-oiled machine as a tag team. Oh yeah, like definitely one of NXT's most underrated tag teams ever. And I remember when we discussed uh, on a previous feature show we reviewed, I think it was TakeOver Rival. And um, we talked about their match with the Lucha Dragons. And I, and I said to them, why are, why were these guys not more uh, more featured on Full Sail NXT at the time? Because again, this was a, a show that was still trying to find its feet, particularly with a new set of talent, new championships, and obviously... Blake and Murphy were new signees by that point. So, but the match they put on at, at this event, again, they just proved, you know, these are two guys that should be taken a lot more seriously, you know, because they're, they're sort of these sort of uh, sort of wild boys, you know, they do these crazy uh, dives and they're very energetic. You know, they've got a good manager with the form of Alexa Bliss. They were all wearing the, the Iron Man gear, as Gary mentioned earlier, which I thought was pretty cool. But, um, and they had a lot of good sort of tag team chemistry as well as, uh, as well as some, uh, some great sort of tag team moves in between as well. So it was, um, but the VOD villains, you know, they certainly gave them a run for their money and they just outshined, uh, in a certain capacity as well, particularly in the second half when Simon Gotch was talked in and then that's when the pace really started picking up mm-hmm. because 
they need to sort of have a good pacing with these tag team matches. And in the first half, you know, it was the old isolate one member of the face team. And then when the second person gets hot tagged in, that's when things start to pick up. So yeah, a very, very solid tag team match. Probably one of the best ones I've seen after Undisputed Era versus Lorcan and Birch at Chicago. It's kind, it is kind of a shame because not long after this one, you know, the Vaude villains, you know, as I mentioned, obviously, sorry, Blake and Murphy, they're t running as a tag team is quite short-lived after this and they're completely surpassed by Alexa Bliss in terms of what happens to them on the WWE roster. But the Vaude villains, they have a brief, a very brief run as a tag champs. They lose it to the Revival, now known as FTR, uh, who, and are completely forgotten about the loss in the shuffle as well because Enzo and Cass are the guys that kind of come up and then we get a lot of these, you know, as Gary mentioned earlier, the top tier opener tag team in the likes of American Alpha, you know, DIY, they all come through in the next year or so. So it's, it's a, it is a shame because the Vaude Villains, it worked on NXT, but it probably wasn't a, a gimmick for the main roster. Vince probably did not have a clue what the fuck was going on. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, and and now he's nowadays he's so butthurt that NXT's outshining Raw and SmackDown, so he just wants to get to the curb. Uh, it's, it's, it's something else, but it's kind of I think it's probably one of the best of the early takeover tag matches. I don't think a lot of the tag matches in the takeovers before this mm. are particularly brilliant. You know, yeah. I'm looking I'm looking at when Kalisto teamed up with uh, Ricardo Rodriguez. <laughs> oh, don't mention that, nah, but. Full sale, the Full Sail Tag Team Wrestling was the was WWE's main contribution to great tag team wrestling because those were young, dynamic talents who just wanted to make a name for themselves. And in front of a smaller, diehard crowd, you know, it, they were in the perfect environment for it, and you they put it, they gave it hundred percent every single time. And in this instance, Blake and Murphy plus the Vaude Villains together was absolute chemistry and chemistry in motion. And yeah, obviously there was a couple of botches. Well, not botches, but you know, the malfunctions at the junction with Blake and Murphy. And I think that's what ended up costing them. But you know, that's the risk of tag team matches. Sometimes you're gonna uh, hit a few missteps and, but that's part of the storytelling at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. I think, I don't think we should underestimate the role that this match plays in the history and what goes on to be the NXT tag team division. Because this was a this was an important turning point for the reason that Stephen mentioned and the teams that followed and the matches we go on to have. I mean, one we'll never know, but one could argue that wouldn't have happened if not for for this. And it gave a newfound appreciation, I think, to tag team wrestling, which was certainly you know you'd have to go back to the the classy hero of WWF to find that. I would argue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with the revival, etc. Mm -hmm. Definitely, uh, Dave. I'm going to go on to you for the next match on the card. A man that you've grown to love since the start of the pandemic. It is. It was the debut of Apollo Cruz. Yeah. WWE uh, taking on Ty Dillinger here. Uh, there's not. This is probably the match on the card. I would say there's very little to say about. It's got its purpose. Gives Apollo mm. Crews the chance to shine in the debut. Not a lot of things to say about it. Yeah, unfortunately, this was a time where Apollo Crews was as green as his Titantron. So it was. Uh, oh, that's, yeah. harsh. That's, that's harsh. No, oh. listen, Apollo Crews, you know, he had, he had every gift that any professional wrestler wants in NXT. You know, he was a big, he was a 
he wasn't a, a small guy either. He was buff, like very muscular, and yet he was pulling off stuff that cruiserweights would do. So, and obviously in a debut, you need to sort of have a, you don't want to get overexposed too much, but you want just the right amount of uh, enough exposure that it piques the, the interest in the crowd. And going up against Ty Dillinger as well, who was under his perfect 10 gimmick, I look back at it and I think, you know, this was this was the year before that he was massively over with the crowd. You know, it was sort of like a little bit heelish, a little bit arrogant, a little bit cocky on his part. But his crowd, but Ty Dillinger's crowd reaction was just dead. Like, I'd never, I think that's the quietest the crowd's been for a, a wrestler's entrance the entire night. But the, what, what really stood out for this match, you know, it may have been, it could be considered the piss break match almost because it was less than five minutes. But if you did miss it, you'd have missed out on something special with Apollo Crews because he was athletic, he was flashy, and he kept taking the Dillinger off guard uh, with all his crazy movesets. You know, things like his standing in Zaguri, the military press into the moonsault. Like, I think that's an, an incredible move to pull off. And it's, I'm really glad that Apollo nowadays has finally found a character that works for him because back then he felt just like another bland babyface with every athletic gift in the world but just couldn't cut a promo to save himself yeah uh, uh, Sarah the thing uh, I'll, I'll go into Dillinger at this particular point as well he kind of at this point I think he kind of took on the mantle that the soon to be Just Robinson kind of had in the early days of NXT Just Robinson's character I can't make his name when he was in WWE Drew Park I think it was something like that. CJ Parker uh, just, yeah CJ Parker thank you I completely forgot uh he was kind of the guy to help feed these new stars and Dillinger took on the role and I think what we've kind of seen maybe more since he's left WWE when he had that big popularity and went to WWE he kind of suits this role I think as the kind of guy in the middle of the cards but he's very good at you know putting on putting over his opponent oh yeah absolutely I mean you also had like he didn't even did he have his perfect 10 gimmick at this point he was starting, he had, uh, he had the 10 shaved in the back of his head, he was doing mm-hmm. the 10 with the hands, it was very early days in the gimmick though, I don't really think yeah. he been on TV an awful lot at that particular point, I think he was just starting to come into TV again. That was yeah. just the, that was the beginning of the gimmick, yeah, you had some 10 signs in the crowd, but it wasn't like a, uh, it wasn't like the man signs at the 2019 Royal Rumble, it was still just trying to get its V off the ground. Yeah, because, um, like, I think, like, bringing in Ty Dillinger to be that kind of role. It is really, really smart to do. I mean, again, he's just sort of finding his feet at the same time. I mean, it, it was maybe a little bit bad in a way, I would say, especially just for um, just for Ty Dillinger at this point, just simply because like he'd made a, it's like return to NXT a couple of years before um, and was just trying to get back into the groove of everything but the it's kind of a shame that he was mainly being used as an enhancement to Hallett until like he did you know debut his perfect 10 gimmick which funny enough was against Sammy Callahan um so um but this was the fact and then he went on to what was it the next takeover take over the end with um Andrade yeah. And he, he'd lost that match, he'd lost that match, and he was losing match after match. And you're sitting going, like, what was kind of the point 
at, at that, at that, like just at that bit, you're like, why, is, why have you got someone that's literally always losing? But at the same time, he's not getting over with the fans, like being like that ultimate underdog at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so having him there just, just for like making Apollo Crews look good, I don't think that that was necessarily the best move for having a debut match for Apollo Crews because. Like, he'd only done house shows, he had never actually appeared on NXT TV before. Um, So I I think, like, maybe having his debut at a pay-per-view, especially when he didn't go on to be one of the guys in NXT. I mean, he got got called up fairly quickly. I mean, it was just under two years. It's like he debuted in August 2015, got called up in the April of 2016. I think it was, so it wasn't yeah. even a year that he was that he was at NXT. Um, yeah, we talked about we talked about that on the Respect show last yeah. year, I think, because when he beat with Tyler Breeze, we kind of mentioned that he kind of was there, and he was like yeah. flashing the pan down there. Because that's what I do right. think. Like, it, it's it's a decent match to have. I feel like this match, when you look back at it, considering the fact that Apollo Crews didn't spend a lot of time at NXT, he didn't become one of the big guys that why such a shining light was put on him at that particular time and having a, a debut in the middle of a card when maybe that could have went to some something else that was maybe going on. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 Gary, I thought when I was watching this match back, I think they were kind of caught in two minds because at one point they had Dillinger who was debuting this gimmick, so they kind of thought, we'll do it, we'll kind of give the gimmick a bit of, you know, meat to the bones. But obviously they were debuting Apollo and I think there's a... I think Apollo has kind of, like, Dillinger has him down for about two, three minutes of the match at one point now Apollo, he's explosive at the end and we see the great stuff that about him and what makes him a great wrestler, but it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of how to bring in a guy, usually something NXT does so well. Yeah, I'm not sure six years later we see this type of introduction to somebody like Apollo Crews. Um, that type of debut on a pay-per-view or a big show. I think that's probably going to be reserved for like uh, one of your big stars coming in, your Shinsuke Nakamura type. Uh, he he debuted at Takeover. I've not just made that up, haven't yeah, I? Yeah, he, t- he debuted at Takeover and yeah, against the, Takeover the, the next year against Sami Zayn, isn't it? I think yep. that's the type of that's how you use that spot. I don't think it does any favors. Now the crowd clearly were happy to see Apollo Cruz. But that type of spot, I don't think... I'm just not sure we see that today. Um, it was really interesting to see, because actually what we've seen of Apollo Crews that night, I think was pretty much you know, standard Apollo Crews up until he changed uh, into the Nigerian Prince. Um, recently, where we've seen like bags of character come out of him then. And again, I said, I said this at the start of the show, really interesting to go back and see people at the sort of early embers of their their personas. And, you know, it was clearly the early days of the, the Perfect Ten. And a couple bits of it that the crowd seemed quite into, particularly when Apollo Crews mocked them during it. But I think it was, a, it was fun to go back and see. And um, it was a... A nice moment for Apollo Crews. I'm not sure jobbing out in this way did Ty Dillinger any particular favours. 
uh, even though he had a good, good you know what was that you know good 50% of the match that he was in control of I'm not sure he had, that you know when I look back at this that it did him any favours yeah. I don't think so I, I don't think Dillinger fully recovers for another year or so when he enters the kind of tag team feud with uh, Bobby Roode yeah. and he eventually has the stuff with Sanity he doesn't want a match in any of those things either. You know, he's not. He doesn't really win much matches in NXT. Mm-hmm. Ty Dillinger, and he, but and yet he still got called up to the main roster just because his character was over as anything. Oh, he was, he was so so over. He's so so over. But as I said, there's not a lot really to kind of say about this match. Uh, the next match is uh, Sarah. What I kind of described in my notes here as two banging entrance themes. It's uh, <laughs> more Joe versus Barry Corbin. Uh, said I'm going to go to you this because uh, on the Takeover Respect show we gave a lot of respect to Barry Corbin and his <laughs> kind of character at this particular point. And it's quite funny when he does the kind of they did the kind of video package to kind of tease this match and he, keep, he starts talking about all these guys that they bring in and they show all the signs of the Tokyo Dome and I was just sitting picture, picture uh, Barry Corbin in the Tokyo Dome that would be something that would, be I mean that would be a sight it's like yes I'm, I was in the Tokyo Dome for five minutes nobody has to know um, but no yes Two banging entrance themes. Like, first of all, I think this is one of Baron Corbin's like best entrance music. I miss his Lone Wolf one. That and the one that he got when he first went to SmackDown. Um, yeah, I bring the darkness. Yes, that one before yeah. he became King Corbin. Like, uh, I prefer that one uh, to the to the Lone Wolf one. Like, yeah, you, you just get like really really hyped for that, and I, I still listen to that song, and I'm like, I wish he still had it. Um, and obviously, Joe's for it's Joe. You're just like Joe. Joe, 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 I saw, Joe, I, saw, Joe. I, saw, I saw a great video last night of like uh, it's a it's a it's a piss take of thing, but it's like it's a Michael Jackson concert where he's dancing. Somebody puts like a thing over it, going, "This is how I this is this is what I do when Samoa Joe's theme tune comes on." It's just Michael Jackson like this, gyrating all across the stage. I, I couldn't share it. It was in a private group. I wish I could share it. It was a bad. Uh, it's like when it stops and it's like do 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 do, and you're like, "Yeah, this is Joe's." It's like Joe, 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 like Joe. Joe. This was like, I'm not going to lie, like I actually really, really love this match, but I think it's more the fact that this was still around about that time that Baron Corbin was kind of essentially squashing most of the people that were yeah. going around. Like, you know, the time in his matches and Samoa Joe, big, big guy, and you're just like, this is going to be a heavy hitting match. This is going to be a good match because let's just face it, you've got a submission expert. And you've got somebody who seems to knock people out with just, you know, either deep six in the end of days. And it's um, like for the length of match time it is, it's only 10, it's like only a wee 10 minute match. But bringing it out to, you know, Joe wins by referee stoppage because you're like, no, cocaine in clutch, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choke you out, I'm going to choke you out. Well, he's dead now. Right. That's a really good point, Sarah, about the, the the guys' match. There was a bit of the match where it felt like the kind of reverse roles to me and Corbin had kind of out-wrestled Joe, but Joe had out-muscled Corbin, who at that point... Yeah. Or I think it happened the other way around, didn't it? <laughs> Joe out-muscled Corbin, and then Corbin got the upper hand and managed to... I think he locked him in a, a knee bar. And I quite liked that little... 
wrinkle in the story. I thought there was quite a good story they told into this as well. You could totally believe it. Uh, Corbin being like, you know, um, like sort of, I'm the chosen one. People disrespect me because I've not been here and that. And I love Joe's comeback to him. It's like, you, you may have called here, but they called me. And I really like the story. And it's just like, how much of a good heel is Baron Corbin? So he is. Uh, he's just so good at that role. Mm. It's just yeah. one of those characters. It's just one of those cocky, arrogant characters who thinks, "Yeah, look at me. I'm big, big high tower. I'm a Golden Gloves <laughs> champion. I'm a NFL guy. Like I could batter any one of you, and you can't do anything about it." But I like the point you mentioned earlier, Gary, about you know Joe putting him in the. I think it was the knee bar. You said, or maybe a heel hook. I can't remember. Uh, uh, but yeah, seeing Corbin actually do some chain mat wrestling on a submission specials like Samoa Joe it was it's quite interesting to see because Joe had him in a single leg crab at yeah. that point and then he actually reversed it into a, into a heel hook and I thought that is some brilliant stuff from Corbin especially when he just sort of tends to just hit folk with clotheslines and just overpower them with his with his sheer strength but he still it it goes show like these two guys you know they're both about 20 stone and yet <laughs> They move so fluidly and so quickly. You know, Joe's pulling off uh, like en- standing enziguris, he's um, and doing all this uh, these great counters where he, I think he got out of a, a schoolboy pin into, and then that's when he converted it into the Coquina clutch. It's he's oh, that so, was a good finish, Dave. I thought yeah. what that, that, that was excellent. He's so he's so deceptively quick, and I think for two big men to pull off a match like that, it was. Very, very entertaining to watch. The thing about it, I thought, well, I thought it, the choice of the matchup was really good because you had a guy like Corbin. Corbin came into this one. He was undefeated at takeovers. He was 4-0 at takeovers. He beat CJ Parker in his debut one. He beat Ty Dillinger mm-hmm. at the takeover after that. Bill Dempsey and Rhino in the, 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 the two ones before this. So he was got a good record of you know, battering big guys. And then you had Samoa Joe who he came in at the previous takeover at the end of the main event to kind of, you know, stop Sami Zayn getting battered after KO. And then the kind of, I remember the feud with him and KO was so disappointing. It was just, they didn't know what to do with it. They went, KO was red hot because he was going, this is around at the point he was going up to the yeah. main roster fighting Cena. And, you know, they didn't really want to take the belt off of Joe was just in. So they were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. So this is what Samoa Joe really needed to kind of re-establish himself as, you know, a force on this on the brand. And then the following takeover he was when the Dusty Cup happens and he wins it with Finn Balor. So I suppose he did yeah. have a some form of bounce back. Yeah, a well needed bounce back. But again, I think I think the thing about this pay per view is the um the first four matches that we've kind of talked about, you know, they capture about the first hour of the pay per view itself. So you know the the decent the nice bite side to get you in the mood. You know, it's like when you have a nice. It's like when you go to a to a buffet and you have a nice wee couple of nibble plates to start with, and it's like, yes, these are decent, you know, but not really what I want. And then the main courses then come out, and then you're like, yes, that's really good. And <laughs> the first of which, you know, is like the you know the Buddha of it. What? This one. It's a, it's a, it's a term of phrase. It's not an actual common Buddha. No, it's. Uh, <laughs> Have you ever heard of that phrase, bro? That is a prom boona. We're going to have to get Smithy in this joint. 
Oh, a prawn burner. Oh, whatever. Oh. Let's not talk about food. Let's talk about Sasha Banks versus Bailey. For the uh, a real uh, burner sooner. Uh, for, the, for the NXT Women's Championship, you know, this is, you know, the match everybody remembers from this pay per view. It is oh, yeah. right up there as. I think we, I don't, we've talked about this so many times in so many past shows. Who wants to kick it, who wants to come in and kick us off? Guys, sorry Dave, I'll let you go first, but I, I've got to say, I, I, I miss, miss Huggable Bailey. Dave, go, go back then. Yeah. Uh, you know what, I'll let you... You miss your child's do. innocence, Gary, as well. You do, you really oh, miss she's, she's her innocence. She's high school yesterday, it's all emotional. You know, this is just making me... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I miss lovable Bailey and... I mean, you know, I miss, I mean, Sasha, this this version of Sasha Banks, the heel nasty boss, was was fabulous. But I think both of them, that, for me, this should have been the main event yeah. uh, of the show. Great story. Uh, you know, that you're being left behind because you're not good enough. You always choke. Uh, the fans were totally into it. And Sasha and Bailey played their parts so well, such great storytelling in it and the match itself delivered but I'll let colleagues come in first because <laughs> I could uh, just go on and on about it I, you know what, you started with it, I'll let you end with it but um, I can honestly say by a country mile, this is one of my absolute favourite matches of all time at the very least in the top 10 because this match between Bailey and Sasha is literally every single thing we love about wrestling done to perfection. Something, it was a storytelling, it was a it was a story told every single step of the way through every move, every spot, every near fall, every big moment. Uh, right from, you know, the, the grand entrances, you know, Bailey's got the, the polka dot wristbands on, Sasha Banks has got that, uh, security guard motorcade entrance and stuff like you could not define a boss more than any other way and some of the stuff they were pulling off you know from top rope moves the poison rana towards the end bailey's sort of dive through the rope to for the the drop kick <laughs> sasha doing the the plancha spinning powerbomb over the referee when he's checking on bailey like all these little things just blended so well together and it told a story of you know this this character is very childlike but she's still a a girl with a dream she failed twice before at claiming the title and it it really was third times the charm and in this instance the what summed it up for me was the bit at the end where bailey's holding the title with charlotte and becky sasha then gets brought in and it almost it was almost reminiscent of the the curtain call in Madison Square Garden where you know the fe- the face heel dynamic is non-existent and then Corey Graves says on commentary that right there is your divas revolution and i got chills just from hearing that like i would say that this is probably the turning point for women's wrestling you know eight months prior to when Stephanie McMahon reinvents it with the new championship and then puts three of them in the WrestleMania match. This, this was the true turning point. Yeah, uh, Sarah, I, I remember, you know, it feels like a eternity ago that we did the 
Well, Gary was on that show as well, actually. The uh, oh. NXT TakeOver Best Matches to that particular yeah. point. We really need to do a new one of that because there's been a few TakeOvers since then. And oh, yeah. we ranked this as the fourth best match and the best women's match mm-hmm. on NXT to, for that, to that point. Many people will also say that this is the greatest women's match ever. Would you say that's a fair statement to be making? Oh, absolutely. It's still one that I love to go back and watch because yeah, it was it was like the kickoff of what we know as the women's revolution in WWE. I mean, I, I, the one thing I did actually really, really like was there was not only so many callbacks to just Sasha and Bailey, but see at this time, we, we still had Sami Zayn being injured and everyone always called him the heart and soul of NXT, especially he was the ultimate underdog and they did they needed something for the women's division that's what they turned Bailey into being that ultimate underdog and her being literally the the heart and soul of the women's division especially when they were going to rebuild it um cuz this is around about the time the Dusty Rhodes had passed away as well um, or coming up to that and so first of all having the big influence cuz we, we had Bailey obviously coming up short, coming up short, getting told she was never good enough and always doubting herself um, and also getting to the point she was basically forced out and then came back, reinvented herself and just sort of got herself all aligned. Yeah, she was still like what was deemed a very childish character, but it's like she got over with the fans, especially obviously Izzy, which, you know, to make you feel old, Izzy started high school in America so that just makes you feel dead old as well. Like, I know it was only six years ago, but it makes you feel damn old. Mm. Um, so, and having Sasha Banks' character, that honestly, I wish that she could have kept that exact character moving into Raw mm. SmackDown, um, especially like even even now, there is nothing wrong with going back to that, that character because she was the ultimate bitch and that's what you need in a heel like you don't just have to be nasty you have to be an absolute fucking bitch um and the storytelling throughout this like you even had the times that even Corey Graves was like yeah this is the Bailey that we need to see this is what we actually need from her we need her to have a little bit more fire and a little bit more aggression behind her because that's what everyone kept saying that she was missing out on and she had so much to prove in being the girl left behind because at this time they were getting known as the four horsewomen this time charlotte becky and sasha had already been called to be part of the divas revolution and you're sitting going where the hell is bailey where the hell is bailey like you kind of got angry for her a little bit and then when this match came together you're like right okay if bailey doesn't win this then why the hell was she not called up so it you did kind of feel, yeah, she was going to probably win this, but you weren't mad that you could predict it because the storytelling made it that much better. And the fact that they still carried it on, it was the near main event. I mean, it was an 18-minute match. And this was just them not even being close to the 30-minute Ironman match that they had at the next takeover. So... it, it all came into place and for me like as much as I love Finn Balor and I loved NXT Finn Balor I believe that the women should have actually had this main event because there was more going into it than Finn Balor and Kevin Owens because um, again at this time 
it was sort of like yeah, Finn Balor's the hot, the very very hot NXT champion. He had literally just won it at Beast in the East. The having a ladder match kind of it felt really quite underwhelming in comparison to this match, mm-hmm. and even just looking back, like even though it's six years ago, it's still one of my all-time favorite women's matches in WWE. And you'll be damn hard if you can find something that can top it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Gary, they talk a lot on commentary about this match being the kind of cumul- uh, ending of a two-year journey for kind of these two, because they mentioned the points, obviously, that Bailey, she's had two shots at Charlotte. She fell short in each of them. Uh, she was in that fatal four-way match with the horsewomen. The only time the horsewomen have been in a match together. Probably might be the only time I've ever seen them in a match together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, the flip side, you had Sasha Banks who won that match and kind of she kind of came up from behind Bailey. You know, Bailey was there before Sasha and Sasha kind of, you know, took over her as the kind of main, you know, female wrestler on the roster. You know, held that title for seven months and kind of flouted it in Bailey's face. So it was some nice long term storytelling in the very early days of NXT that you just. It makes you kind of feel like this is the type of thing that they could have done on the main roster. We mentioned this on the Takeover Respect show. I keep mentioning that show because it was a big factor this one, but there's just so many things that they do right in this one, you know, with the build to it, the big match feel, you know, and just everything that goes between. Yeah, this match and the one that follows is what Bailey and Sasha should have had on the main roster. I mean, I, I still think it's. A cry shame that Bailey and Sasha didn't have their blow off at WrestleMania. Uh, now, uh, you know Sasha had a good, a, a very good moment at WrestleMania with Bianca Belair. Bailey, uh, um, less said about that the better. I don't want the goat falling out with me if I diss the Bellas um, there. But the story, Stephen, I it's just it just threads the whole way through this match. You know, is Bailey going to have what it takes so the the match gets off to a fast pace? You see Bailey pulling out some big moves. There's a cracking springboard elbow drop into the corner here, and then you see the match going on. Sasha talking trash, and Bailey kicks her right in the face. Um, and then you see signs of Sasha getting desperate. She takes Bailey's hat, Bailey's hand uh, brace off, and starts to work on the the hand. Um, you see the bank statement, the high thigh moves that Dave mentioned, the bank statement, which she, she was just the backstabber into the bank statement. I, I think that looks absolutely devastating and brilliant at the same time. But we see her, she gets the bank statement on and they're getting to the ropes and she's stomping in Bailey's hand, a move that we'd see to come again. Um, and then it looks like Bailey's going to break the move and she does the kick off the rope. Uh, to roll roll through, but Bailey manages to reverse it, and then we see this brilliant finish, the the devastating um, uh, reverse runner of the top rope, which I think is one of the most dangerous moves out there, but executed really well. And she goes over and she gets up and Bailey's up so quickly, and the crowd know what's coming, and she hits the Bailey to Bailey, and people start to lose their shit there. And I just thought, you know, really good match. Great story, huge credit to both uh, Bailey and Sasha for playing their roles. But what a what a finish! And I think you know 
Sarah and I are on the same page with this one. This should have been the moment that takeover finished on. Uh, the crowd went absolutely wild, and it was a nice moment with the others in the ring. I, I did find it a wee bit weird that Charlotte and um, Sasha were not Sasha, sorry, Charlotte and Becky were in the wrestling gear. They actually they, they, they wrestled, carried, didn't they? <laughs> they, they wrestled the kind of they had some dark matches kind of on the show, which kind of. It's on the poster, there's other matches that took mm-hmm. place. There was uh, there was a fatal four-way with day two, Emma and Dana Brooke. There was also a I think it was a four-way tag. No, an eight-man tag match. It was Zack Ryder, Mojo Rawley, Jason Jordan, and Chad Gable against the revival or some some form of other revival Enzo and Cass. Well, was American uh, Alpha not heels at that point? No. No. I, I think it was kind of This is before the Disney Classic, so yeah, I think uh, I think it was I think it was American Alpha and Revival against the hype was. My point is, if you had the if you had the if you didn't know that, it looks a bit. I didn't. I didn't click to me until I watched I, she was, but she was, she was under her, Kana. Yes. under Kana, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was before she was rechristened as Asuka. I mean, she she kind of debuted. I think it was like the NXT after that Asuka. Uh, but oh, there's right. there is a moment not long before the finish that the kind of bot, there's a botched Frankenstein a moment, which yes. looks quite nasty. Oh yeah. Did you guys, did yeah. you guys think that's the planned finish? Because they seem to kind of buy a bit of time for a yeah, bit of there was a. After that. I think that was my only. If I had to, if I had to critique anything on that match, it would probably just be that one botch. But you, you saw the way Bailey landed as well. You think that that wasn't meant to happen, and it looked properly painful because you came right down on her on her shoulder. And I thought, well, I mean, if that was that meant to happen, but I thought it was a. I thought it was just a really good counter. But it, from after a few seconds, you think, yeah, that was. I think I really think that was meant to happen. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, Stephen, because this show was supposed to go two hours and it went two hours, 20 minutes, and they, they've mentioned it in commentary to say if we were on pay-per-view, we'd be off the air, but because we're on our own network, you're getting this extra time on it, so I think that probably was the finish and they went with it, but the the, the finish is the executed that I thought was excellent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, as I say, it's hard to find the criticism in the match because the match is pretty much bang on to a T. One of the mm-hmm. best matches that the, the, the mm-hmm. NXT's produced, you know, one of the best matches WWE's produced in mm-hmm. many in many years and say that it's just a shame that, you know, three of the four horsewomen then have to compete in that match at SummerSlam the next night. You know, mm-hmm. the nine women tag team match, which is Oh, oh don't talk Absolutely. about well I think the only good thing about SummerSlam that year, actually, we we reviewed SummerSlam moments uh, last, last week. week. Last week, yeah, and I think oh, John was, Stewart. Yeah, John Stewart was there. They had, but we did get that glorious Undertaker and Brock Lesnar laughing meme as well. So I suppose it was a it was a bit of a balanced show. But apparently, according to Pro Wrestling Torch newsletter, uh, SummerSlam got six and a half out of ten, whereas Takeover Brooklyn got a nine. So you, they basically just two it different cards on the road. Before we go on and talk about the main event of the show, I'm going to just briefly talk about some of the other things that took place in the show in terms of, you know, 
the people in the crowd have mentioned them briefly. As I mentioned at the start, we saw the NWO in the crowd, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall and X-Puck, who apparently were there to support their friend Triple H. We had the Tough Enough finalists, which include a lovely cameo of Mandy Rose. My notes literally just say, Mandy Rose, exclamation mark. Mm-hmm. Exclamation mark. Yeah, I, I, thought, I, I thought the guy at the end who won it, I was sitting there thinking, does he become Josh Briggs? And I looked it up and it doesn't, it doesn't become Josh Briggs. That's a, that's a random... Uh, I can't thing. even remember who won it that year. Um, I some Sarah, Sarah Lee, who I think is married to... She's married to Aris. Can't mean to it's, sure. it's, um, is it Wesley, Wesley Blake? Blake? Is it Wesley, Wesley Blake? Blake? Yeah. yeah. And, I, uh, knew, Ch- I knew he was. She was married to one of them. Aye. Definitely not Murphy. And no, uh, definitely not Murphy. Yeah. Uh, Chelsea, Chelsea Green was also in that tough enough as well. So there was yeah. a nice, nice wee snippet mm-hmm. as well. As Gary mentioned, we had the random trio of Ric Flair, Sergeant Slaughter, and Asuka. Yeah. Can you imagine all three of them in a room just together, just doing a promo. Like, how mad would that be? We had uh, the, the podcast's favourite female wrestler, Tamina. She Ooh. was there with Naomi to support her fellow Team Bad member, Sasha Banks. Uh, Triple H, they show a clip of Triple H announcing one of the upcoming takeovers, which was take place in London. Uh, unfortunately, they've not been back for a takeover because they decided to launch a UK brand instead. Mm. So, Do you know that London takeover was just something that, uh, looking back on it, I I have very few memories of it and it feels like it should have been a bigger deal than it was. I don't know if it's just me that feels that way or uh, the rest I of think, it. Nah, I think uh, the same. Yeah, I think it could have been a lot more than what it was given. Like, But then again, Brooklyn was already some big shoes to fill anyway. But what made TakeOver London so spectacular was definitely crowd participation. Like, you know, they always say, like, for any wrestling event to be memorable, sometimes you just need an energetic crowd. And, you know, if anybody watches, like, British football matches and stuff, you know you'll always get an energetic crowd. Yeah. We also had uh, Stephanie McMahon coming out praising the female wrestlers. I skipped that bit when I rewatched the network. So so apologies if anybody wanted to hear about that wee bit. Um, William Regal announced that the Dusty Cup, the first ever Dusty Cup, was going to start in a couple of weeks' time. We reviewed a lot more about that at the on the NXT Takeover Respect show that we did last year. If you want to hear more about the first ever Dusty Classic, and of course, to tease into SummerSlam, we had a view in the front row of the then WWE Champion Seth Rollins, who we were debating in the chat before the show. Was he with the person that he did the, that, that thing with? He did the dirty. He did the dirty too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If it was said person, she also went out with Sonya Deville, so she's that's a. She trained it up. <laughs> uh, that, that's a great point. If it, I, I'm completely going off topic, but she went out with she went out with Seth and she went out with Sonya, and the two of them are battling for best suits on Friday nights on SmackDown. Yeah, <laughs> true. Seth Rollins still wins the, the drip game on that, unfortunately. He wins the drip game, but Sonya's suits are on point. She oh, yeah. Oh, yeah then again, Sonya, Sonya Deville's meant to be an authority figure on SmackDown, so she's got to be sharp and professional Seth to the point. Messiah, man. Well, yeah, Seth Rollins could get away with wearing suits that get paint on them, that have got butterflies on them, and one that looks like a tablecloth. 
It's, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing that a year ago, one of the high-profile matches of SummerSlam was Sonya Deville versus Mandy Rose. Yeah. That gave them two both great pushes. Sonya's thing is different circumstances, obviously, but what they did to Mandy Rose is dirty here. <laughs> anyway. Can you imagine if it was hair versus hair? Like, I just can't imagine Sonya Deville uh, with short hair or bald. If they enough time off, she could have grew it back anyway. It would have made a point of difference. Uh, or she grew it back to some level. Anyway, without, that's the wee snippets of what happened over the rest of TakeOver. We're going to go on and talk about the main event. As we've mentioned, a lot of our panel don't think this should have been the main event, but it was the main event nonetheless. It was Kevin Owens taking on Finn Balor. Finn Balor, who won the NXT Championship from Kevin Owens, as Sarah mentioned, at the Beast from the East show the month before, which was a glorified show to show off Brock Lesnar, I think it's fair to say, and they just chucked this match on it. But this was a ladder match, they mentioned it was the second ladder match in NXT history, the first being Neville versus Bo Dallas on the first ever NXT special on the network. First ever! So this is the match that closed the show, as I say, it was Finn Balor's first defence of the title. Uh, Dave, I'm going to go on to you. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, big match feel to it, at least, you know, they did that one on. And mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say NXT Demon Balor is on a completely different level to the Demon that they brought on the main roster. Yeah, for sure. Like, main roster Demon, I think, was just solely there for merch sales. Like, yeah, nah. it, it was never sort of taken seriously as like a separate entity. It wasn't like, it wasn't like the fiend. You know, you could sell masks and t-shirts and the Firefly Funhouse puppets and stuff with ease because he was he was defined as one half of you know Bray Wyatt's character. Whereas you know Finn Balor was more or less himself, but if he needed to channel that extra energy, he would just uh, he would just sort of paint paint on himself and yeah, it wasn't really. The, the whole aesthetic of the demon just sort of went away in that instance. But here, it was just done perfectly well. Because whereas Beast of the East was much more of a traditional wrestling match between him and Kevin Owens, this one was purely a spot fest where the sole purpose was to inflict pain and punishment on each other. Uh, and there were some really, really great moments that made this worthy of a main event. So not to, you know crap on it for taking precedent over Bailey and Sasha, but it definitely did have some really good moments, you know, some high-risk offense, the coup de grace from the top of the ladder, Kevin Owens taking a bump, taking multiple ladder bumps, one from falling off to the bridge ladder and then getting scoop slammed onto the, the sideways ladder. Like, I don't know, does he just find, is he just a glutton for punishment when it comes to taking that spot? Because he's done it multiple times whenever there's a ladder match on. And the... The, but what I think was really good about this match in particular was Kevin Owens' level of trolling within the first half. Because the crowd was chatting Ole in reference to Sami Zayn, but then he does he does this taunt where he teases like his shoulder coming out of his socket. And that's what happened to Zayn when he challenged Cena for the US title. Just uh, I think it was a, the, the weeks prior. But the best moment was when he has Balor pinned against the ring apron with the ladder and then he sort of bridges it with an arch and it looks like he's about to take a massive run up for a big spot and then he just casually just walks around the side and just slaps him in the face and it was just like ah yeah wido just going for a big spot and he just does something really pathetic but it's yeah these guys you know 
I think they ticked a lot of boxes in trying to make it a good main event, but I did feel there was something missing compared to Bailey and Sasha, and I have to agree with Gary and Sarah on this. I think Bailey and Sasha feel felt more like the true main event. Yeah, uh, Gary, I have here in my notes is KO the most popular bastard heel of all time <laughs> because he's an absolute you know asshole. But every time we see the crowd, just cheer him all the time. He's just that. Yeah. He's that loved, but he always portrays somebody who's just a despicable bastard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the NXT crowd have always been kind of guilty for that. We kind of appreciate somebody that's good at their craft, and he is certainly good at his craft there. Um, and Dave gave a pretty good summary of the of the match there. I thought, you know, something else that Kevin Owens does... I. I I'd never seen somebody do a pop-up powerbomb before I seen before KO, and he's you know it's such a sweet move. Uh, but we see when he does it to the this um, ring apron, that still looks devastating. Mm. And there was a, also one with uh, Balor off the top of the ladder in this match that was was pretty good. Mm. What, one of the things I liked about this match, I thought they made some really good use of the ring side area and the space rimmed about it and unlike a lot of ladder matches you didn't get loads of times of people crawling up or trying to climb up the ladder and then getting yanked back down so there was a i i appreciated that because it kind of makes no sense if somebody's standing you know within touching distance would try and run up the ladder and um, i thought you know we've seen so many ladder matches over the years there's the danger the temptation to always push the envelope and do more and more and um i think kevin nash referenced this recently uh, when he talked about mick foley going off the cells that how on earth did you ever top top that yeah so i thought there was some um psychology in this match it was a good and some nice spots look look devastating but we're not going to kill anybody like the there was a nice spot during the match of um, uh, Balor was outside the ring, Owens was getting a ladder outside the ring, and then turns round and Balor comes flying off the announce table with a drop kick. There, um, I thought, yeah, I would summarise it with saying like a, a really good physical match, uh, which I, I enjoyed it uh, a lot. And it was it was nice after a period of time to see the demon in action again. Mm, yeah, because kind of the latter parts of the demon on the main roster just be squash guys, you know. Mm-hmm. On, and what was good about the demon in NXT was he always seemed to customize the paint job uh, based on where the event was being held. Like, because obviously in London he's dressed as Jack the Ripper. In Dallas the following year he was dressed as Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think in this instance, it was a little bit trickier because it's New York, but I did notice on his back, he had a, a gargoyle painted on it. And I think it's because, I can't remember if gargoyles are on either the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building, but I think that's where the inspiration for that one came from. I mean, he could have easily just painted like a like a demonic version of King Kong on his back if he wanted to and it would still work. That, that, that would have been quite an elaborate thing to do with Dave, that's it. I think what he did was quite subtle enough on it. Uh, Sarah, oh, made subtle references comparing this match to the match before it. And when I was watching this back today, I had a bit of a thought in my head. Of, this match to me kind of screams like NXT's version of Triple H versus Randy Orton at WrestleMania 25. <laughs> that's a match that if you watch in solitude, 
It's not a bad match, but that particular match had to follow Undertaker versus, you know, Shawn Michaels. I think I'm. I'm trying to, I, you may correct me in this, Sarah, because I can't also get the order, but if you're trying to go with a more modern version, I think it's kind of like when Cody and MJF had to follow Hangman Omega and the Bucks at full mm-hmm. gear. I think Cody and MJF were on after that. If I'm wrong, please correct me on it. But it's that type of thing. If you watch all some of these matches in isolation, they're not bad. But when you have to follow one, one of the you know all-time classics, it's very difficult to do. And they kind of both had a tough task. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I do completely agree with that. Because there are some matches that you're like, how are you supposed to follow that? How on earth are you meant to follow that? Crap. Shit. Oh, fuck. How am I going to do that? Um, but when you watch it just by itself, you're like, that's actually a really good match. Yeah, I can see why like they did that match. It's good, it's hot, and everything as well. I mean, going back to like Kevin Owens and his whole heel persona as well, like he had just beaten John Cena at Elimination Chamber like this year, like before heading into Takeover. So of course he was confident. But the fact that he kept thinking that William Regal was plotting against them, like it's conspiracy Owens, and he's just like, no, I want something that's going to go in my favour. Ladder match. Ladder match. Mm. That's clearly going to go in my favour. And see as well with Gary saying how beautiful the pop-up powerbomb is. Controversial opinion. It might be, I don't think Kevin Owens should be using the stunner anymore. I think he should go back to the pop-up powerbomb. It's much more suited to him. Um, and that is a hill I am willing to die on. Just saying that now. I'd concur um, with that, actually. The pop-up powerbomb was a devastating move on its own, and particularly when he used it on the on the ring apron. I think it's like, a better move than the stunner. Honestly, I do. Yeah, it, I just think that. Yeah, I think the only thing that might let it down is the setup of it, because you have to sort of rebound them and then push you them up. You can do anything with a pop-up powerbomb. I mean, he did it on the apron. Is it on the ladder? He did it off the ladder. He did it it's off the ladder. He did do it off the ladder, yeah. It's still a power bomb. What? Um, what? It's a hell I'm willing to die on. But yes, <laughs> when, you look, when you look at the match in comparison to the match before, yeah, sadly, the match, it's not even sadly, the match before overpowers it and overshines it. And you're just like, ha. At this point, this is where I'm like, feminism, yes. It's like, fuck you. I just mean, just for a slight second, just because I could. Right? I mean, I've, I've, I have a, a hell I'm willing to die on in this particular match. It's the start <laughs> of the match where they make reference to Kevin Owens has been in dozens of ladder matches. I had a look, and obviously Kevin Owens... It's not spent, that many! <laughs> Kevin Owens spent the majority of his pre-WWE career in Ring of Honor. Before this pay-per-view, <laughs> Ring of Honor had held five ladder matches. <laughs> And the whole, the whole time granted. You would make him think that he does ladder matches like every single day granted, of the week. Granted, three of those five ladder matches did feature Kevin Owens, but oh, that, oh, that, oh so he was in yeah. the majority three. of ladder yeah, matches. Yeah, he was in the majority of them. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the Byron Saxon or Cody Graves. I'm having, I'm having a, I'm having like just a heart attack. He was in three whole ladder matches before coming to WWE. Like, they make it sound like he does it when he gets up in the morning, just like instead of eating his Frosties, he's like, no, nah, I'm just going to have a casual ladder match with my son. In fairness, like, these, these three ladder matches sound really good. It's him and, <laughs> it's him and Sami Zayn against the Briscoes. Then it's him and Sami Zayn against the American Wolves. 
Oh, with the Davy Richards and Eddie Edwards. Eddie Edwards, I love Eddie Edwards. And then there's a, a singles match between him and Sami Zayn. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. None of those, none of those matches were with Sami Zayn. They were with El Generico. Whatever happened to him? Uh, <laughs> whatever happened to El Generico? But yes, like this match, yeah, standalone, great match. Like if you just watched it from like that match onwards, you'd be like, hell yeah. That's actually a decent match. And then when you put it with the match before, you're like, uh, mm. um, well, that, hmm, it's, it's, it's kind of like getting and getting towards the climax, and then it's just like, nope, flaccid. That's just, <laughs> 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 like, that's what I keep thinking. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if Bailey and Sasha is the climax, then you know Valor's It's like it's flaccid. I take it you're not going to be letting Daniel listen to this podcast, are you? <laughs> dude, dude, as I'm recording tomorrow is my two-year anniversary with Daniel. I need to see the good books if I want to get something pretty. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not going to have you the good books. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not just saying it's comparison to that. Oh, what you were saying. To go back on something else I said earlier, I could I don't make usually the... make you guys laugh this much. I'm quite proud of myself. Oh, Gary, that's for sure. <laughs> To go back to something I said earlier, MJF Cody did come after that tag match in last year. It was two matches. It, well, it was two matches after it. That match was terrible. MJF Cody's terrible anyway. But the match directly after that was Nyla Rose and Chris Statlander. That's mm. flaccid. Oh, for God's sake. That's, well, if you if, if I look at my other comparison with WrestleMania 25, the one that came directly after Taker's Michaels was John Cena versus Big Show and Edge. Triple H and Randy Orton was doomed to fail, especially within about the first minute. They both blew their loads early with their finishers like straight off the bat. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> some, um, some other things I noted in this main event to, as we calm down. Uh, there was something distracting the crowd very early on. We seem to be focusing. Oh, yeah, that was not a. Beach ball spot because the crowd was Beach looking over towards where the. <laughs> Aye, because the crowd was looking over at one point and then. Yeah, I, I don't know. Was I, like was that was it because of a beach what ball? Because I, I felt so sorry for the folk that were wrestling at that time, because I was just like they're all distracted, they're all looking away, and it makes me angry as a wrestling fan because it was just like your focus should be in the ring, not the shenanigans of a beach ball. Match it was. You were distracted by the beach ball. You can't remember what I match. I was distracted was. by the fans that were distracted by the beach ball. It so was. It was. Difference. It was the main event actually that the beach ball incident took place because I remember. Right? Owen, Owens was visibly pissed off as well, just from from watching his reaction. I found another ladder match that Kevin Owens is in. <laughs> <laughs> with Elgin uh, Eric. With El Generico for the PWG World title. 
uh, and October threat. So he's got four for four this match. Four, at least four. Four, and all with this imaginary person called El Generico. God damn. Um, but some of the spots, but there was some. They did their best with some of the spots they pulled off. I loved the kind of use of the announce table. I think Gary was mentioning some of the stuff that was going on outside, where they kind of were just throwing the bits of the announce table. And then as they got a ladder set up, Balor would drop kick stuff onto him, which was quite good. Uh, some good cannonball spots as well. In particular, the one where he has Balor, KO is Balor propped in the corner on the ladder, and he goes for it, and Balor moves. That looks absolutely nasty. Uh, and the coup de grace on the top of the ladder does look. I yeah. hold my hands up. I mentioned on a, on a recent show that the coup de grace was a bad finisher, but it's not off a big ladder. You know, it does look quite so. Yeah. Yes, getting getting even more height because let's just face it, the turnbuckle is over five foot from the ring. So jumping apparently five foot is not good enough for Stephen. Jumping ten foot is better for yeah. Stephen. I, um, I don't like I don't like how it's very choreographed as. Like, as Michael Cole says, in the drop zone, you know, it's... Well, he is in yeah, the drop yeah. zone, well, so that's where you drop. Yeah, and if, if somebody jumped at you from about 10 feet in the air with the full weight of their body cr- crashing down in your chest, you would probably, your rib cage would probably implode. So yeah, it's, they've got to do it with a little bit of safety degree to it. And even even something as simple as like the, the double mushroom stomp as well, just from off the, the mat, like even one misstep or one extra oomph with the stomp and you could seriously hurt somebody so it's i mean it's simple effective and it's almost got an element of strong style to it as well uh, i think as well to compare as we've done quite a lot in this last half an hour we compared these two main events in terms of dave Meltzer, you know he gave the main event four and a, four and a quarter stars and he gave the sasha bailey match 4.5 stars because you know for dave to give an nxt women's match five stars it's like how dare you? Absolutely unheard of. So, a quarter star for Meltzer in comparison. But I think from our assessment of this pay-per-view that these matches were just completely different levels. The woman was five star, the guy's just four and a half. It's simple as that. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. At, at, at worst, 4.75. At best, five and five and a half. Like, it was, how, I'd say how that... How dare you have over five stars? You can't break the Meltzer scale. Hey, for this for this women's match alone, we can break the Meltzer scale. No, you're not allowed to. Your your name might be Dave, but you're not allowed to. All right. <laughs> Only Kenny Omega breaks the Meltzer scale. <laughs> but yeah, um, comparing these two matches, I think the the ratings are somewhat justified because Bailey and Sasha did feel more like the main event. But the argument that Sarah and Gary, I think, both made there was if you watched Balor versus Owens on its own you would think it was main event worthy. It's just that it had to follow such a brilliant women's match is kind of what let it down. But both matches in their own right were actually very, very good. And when can you say, when can you say, has NXT ever done a bad ladder match? Because I don't think it has. No. I mean, how many ladder matches have they done? Oh, too many. they, They actually have ladder matches specifically for determining who gets the advantage in war games. Oh, yeah. They did the two of them this year. Um, I think you're right, and it may sound like we're picking apart this, but they were both very good matches on what was a very, very, very good show. And it's, you know, we're splitting hairs somewhat, but it seems like we, we all feel that the, the Women's Championship match was the better, and it should have been the main event because it had more story to it. But they were both both fine matches. 
the the closing moment as well of the women's match when all four of them came out and Corey Graves' commentary, it really felt like the end of of a takeover show because you want to end on you want to end on a happy note. Yeah, end on a happy note, end on a high note, and this and not be betrayed by the watermark. Yeah, and this this event in particular, as I said earlier, I think was the turning point for women's wrestling. And if you ended the show on that kind of note, it would it would remain one of the most memorable moments in WWE history. But the good thing is, people still remember it to this day, even when it wasn't the main event, the match that went on last. And I think that's just a testament to how impactful that women's title match was. WWE have done eight matches since COVID happened, since COVID kicked in, obviously. And six of them have been on NXT. All the exceptions were the triple threat at WrestleMania 36 for the tag team titles, like mm-hmm. Morrison, Jimmy Uso and Kofi, and the very underrated match at Class of Champions between Sami Zayn, Jeff Hardy and AJ Styles. Yeah. The, other six, the other six are all NXT. LA yeah. Knight, Cameron Grimes, Santos Escapar, Devlin, Shotzi Raquel, Dunn O'Reilly, uh, Priest winning the North American title, and Io Shirai becoming the number contender for the NXT title. Mm-hmm. So there's been there's been lots in the last year. There wasn't oh. that many before that, but there's been lots in the last year. I know it's like they sort of discovered it, and they're like, "This is my favorite thing." I'm I mean, doing all we, the time. How could we possibly forget the the six man ladder match to crown the inaugural North American champion? Arguably that NXT's was, best ever ladder match. That was excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the fourth ladder match in NXT history, and as I've mentioned, they've done a lot since then. So mm-hmm. they make ladder matches. Anyway, it's time for us to do what we always do at the end of these review shows. We're going to get our Meltzer hats on, and we're going to rate this particular show out of five. Now, a lot of the ones I've hosted, the guys have called quite down the middle, because as Gary said, we've reviewed a lot of crap ones. So, <laughs> we're going to go around the panel here. I'm going to go to Gary first. What would you go? 4.5 out of 5. I would have gone for 5 out of 5. Um, huge if there was a couple of these matches in the earlier ones that were very enjoyable but didn't mean a great deal so probably 4 out of 5 out of 5 Dave what are you going to go with this? Uh, I'm going to give it 4.75 largely because the two co-main events were near enough 5 star matches on their own I think what let it down though was I think a a far too short match between Apollo Crews and Ty Dillinger like I get it was meant to be a debut but it's a it's a risky take when you know having someone's debut on a, a pay-per-view style event so for that reason I feel that's the only blip on this show so I'm going to give it 4.75 okay uh, Stana what are you going to go uh, well I think I would say 4.25 and that is mainly just because the, see if they had done the placement different that would have probably brought it up a notch like finishing on that high note um, but also just the fact that the Apollo Crews match with Ty Dillinger just didn't fit for the pay-per-view but it was not long enough to you know tell a story essentially it was just a match yeah I would agree on the 4.25 uh, I would love to go 4.5 or 4.75 or even 5, but I think I think the the Cruz Tillinger match does let down the card a wee bit. 
I would have rather they chucked the guts a couple of tag teams who were on pre-show matches in the poster, you know, Enzo and Cass, The Revival, Alpha, American Alpha. Maybe if we chuck them into some sort of match, you know, that'd been quite good. Maybe have Apollo Crews and the crowd, as we've seen in a lot of takeovers afterwards as a way of getting them in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have actually liked as well if they started the show with the tag match as well. I understand them starting with the Liger one, because mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, just in front of Liger. But uh, on, a more, on a more positive note, in 2019, uh, Troy L. Smith of uh, released 50 greatest wrestling pay-per-views of all time, like a tier list. Takeover Brooklyn was ranked at 32, so it's up there as one of the greatest uh, pay-per-views ever from any wrestling promotion. Hey. There you go. What was number one on that list? I'm being quite nosy. Oh, WrestleMania, WrestleMania, WrestleMania 17. Oh, yeah. oh. Yeah, that's very, that's very, very fair. So we have given this pay-per-view an average score of 4.4 out of 5. Which uh, I believe is the highest we've rated a pay per view in well, lot since I started rating the pay per views. I didn't know you were keeping account. <laughs> I just remember that we did a lot of the ones in the nineties and we rated them all three stars. <laughs> <laughs> that's what ECW December to December will get. Oh, that's going to be oh. five six stars, Gary. We all know that. Yes, we yes. Yeah, no spoilers that. for December to December. Yes, are you volunteering to do that show, Sarah? I'll put you down in the panel. Uh, Thank you, why, you're on. You know what? Why not? Because I like tearing things apart. I See, like being a bitch. Anybody can talk about a good show. It takes a high calibre of panellists to analyse a shit show. Yeah, I mean, if you enjoy these kind of pay-per-view lookbacks that we've been doing a lot more I don't more think I've watched it all the way through. I don't think uh, I've watched it all the way through because uh, I'm uh, just uh, like, no. I watched the main event a couple of months ago. It's, uh, yeah, it's Chris crap. Uh, but uh, if you like our pay-per-view look-back uh, shows that we do, we actually have four of them coming up over the rest of the year. We have December to December, which is coming, which is the last one we're doing this year. We've also got a look-back on TakeOver Toronto. The first, one, the first one, I believe. Yes, the first one. Uh, Survivor Series 1996. And just in a couple of weeks' time, Backlash 2016. So that's Whoa. some good ones in there. Backlash 2016. Gary has done some sort of miracle and got Jack Graham to be on a feature show. Oh my <laughs> God. Yeah. Jack wants to actually appear in a show that, for a change, that people actually listen to. Oi. People love our Saturday Draft Live, so don't be disappointed. Ah, uh, well, you know, somebody's got to love it. <laughs> Sounds like my dating life. Uh, uh, next week as well, we're going back to our Mount Rushmore series as well. Where we'll be doing the Mount Rushmore of commentators. That should be quite yeah. an interesting show to go on. And I think it was this kind of stretch. There was one name in particular who was notably absent from this show, and I think he's going to be mentioned quite a lot next week. I'll leave. I'll leave it. I'll leave it to you to figure out who. Yeah, thank oh, you, Sarah. We've not, we've not mentioned that guy, Rich Brennan, who, you know, I thought was a little bit, bit of a wet wet paper towel on the show. <laughs> yeah, I, it, I mean, he didn't really sort of add or take anything away. He was just he kind of there. Nothing. Byron Saxton made that pay-per-view. We all know it. Mm-hmm. Byron no, Saxton. Corey, Corey Graves' line of... Corey Graves' Divers Revolution line just made the entire show. Dave. Oh, yeah. Byron 
Byron Saxton makes any show if there's uh, anybody interested. I've seen write-ups of interviews done recently by on Samoa Joe, and he talks about uh, the the rain incident at WrestleMania this year, and the way uh, the way Byron's quite frantic apparently with his headset. It's, it sounds quite funny, but that's not for me to say. That's what we've got. But this has been a look back at t- the first ever Takeover Brooklyn show. If you have enjoyed it, this is the first time you listen to us, please hit the subscribe button. We're on all the podcast platforms. You can find us there. Uh, social media as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Suplex Retweet, and YouTube as well. We've got all our content on there as well. You can also go into EatSleepSuplexRetweet.com if you can't remember all the things I said beforehand and you want to find the links in there. Everything's all in there. EatSleepSuplexRetweet.com. As Gary also mentioned as well, Saturday Draft Live on a Saturday. Uh, we've just finished Season 9. Who won Season 9? I have no idea because it's not happened yet when I recorded this one. Gary, uh, you better win this. We had a deal. Yes, Sarah. Sarah, if you had given me some of the points that you gave to <laughs> that other guy. I was um, in a very vulnerable state. <laughs> and if Stephen Wilson had been sensible enough to, to join forces with me, then. Jack Graham would have been eating dust by now. Yeah, but Stephen, thought... Stephen was like, no, I can win it. No, you fucking can he, Stephen. And who was right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not going to win it. You're not going to win it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> you don't know. You may have won it. Who knows? <laughs> Follow us on social media and you'll find out who won the draft. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'd like to thank my panel. Uh, Gary, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Sarah, thanks. Thank you. And Dave, thank you as well. Thanking you. Yeah. And we will see you next time from us. See you later. Hi, I'm Scott McLeod. And I'm Grant McGrobby. We are the hosts of the monthly show on Eat Sleep Suplex Retreat East Meets West. Where we'll bring you all the latest happenings, reviews and big events from New Japan and the land of the Far East. You can remember to check that out on the Eat Sleep Suplex Retreat podcast feed on all good Android podcasting sites like Anchor, Spotify or iTunes now. Mm-hmm.